maybe you're like me, and at first you don't see the connection between two stories. Jesus walking on the water and Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. If I do this right this morning, you'll see the connection. If I don't do this right, don't say anything. <laughs> Central to the idea of slave to child uh, is the discovery, however long it takes, that God is not who we thought he was and neither are we. This discovery, and it happens again and again and again in our lives, is not so much the changing of religions as it is the changing of personalities within the same religion, God's and ours. And it leads us to a new identity at the end of our journey, that of being a child of God, no longer just a servant. This conversion is also a crisis for a lot of people when they discover that God is not who we thought he was and therefore neither are we because it feels to us like we're losing the only God we knew. And we have not yet taken hold of another one. And so it feels like a free fall. I have called this process the death and resurrection of God. It's the peeling back of old ideas of God so that new ones can emerge. It's this cycle from believing to unbelieving, back to believing, back to unbelieving, this death and resurrection of God, which are not so much places as they are stops along the way in the journey from slave to child. And if we can be patient with ourselves when we fall into this period of life where it is hard to believe in the God we have known so far, and if we will be open-minded enough to new revelations, and if we will be courageous enough to seize those and humble enough to remain teachable, then this can actually be a very life-giving process in life. This is what I want for me and what I want for all of us. But it does not come easy. In the Gospels, of course, this happens all the time because the God that people believe in actually entered the world in the person Jesus Christ. And from that moment on, he acted in ways that were completely the opposite of the God everybody believed in. We must not think as contemporary modern people on the other side of the cross 2,000 years that we have him figured out. For Jesus, as God, is always capable of saying things and doing things that do not line up with the God that we believe in. 
This, as I said, is a very restless time. It's an unnerving time. But if we are open to Jesus's revelation of God. So what we've done in the last few weeks is we've looked at some encounters that people had in the gospels with Jesus. And what did they go into that encounter believing was true about God and what actually showed up that day? Uh, For 14 years, my family lived in Michigan, uh, one block away from Lake Huron. It's a little bit bigger than the Mississippi River. It's actually 23,000 square miles in water surface, about the size of West Virginia. It's the second largest of all five Great Lakes. It's known for its sudden storms. They're violent. They come out of nowhere. It's known for its lighthouses to guide ships along the way in those storms. More than 120 lighthouses line the beaches of Lake Huron alone. And it's known, of course, for its shipwrecks. More than a thousand shipwrecks still lying at the bottom of the lake. It's a diver's paradise. There's a little place north of Alpena. I'll use my map. This is nice when you're speaking of Michigan. Uh, By the way, I just call it the left hand of God, by the way. He put his hand on the map and there it was. Sweet 16, I'm just saying. There is this place north of Alpena called Thunder Bay. Thunder Bay is a fraction the size of Lake Huron, but there's more than 200 of these wrecks at the bottom of Thunder Bay alone. They call it Shipwreck Alley. I don't know how it is, but suddenly out of nowhere, the the winds can just come and hit Thunder Bay and the waves just get out of control. It's what they say where old ships go to die, like in 1913, one storm alone sent more than 11 vessels to the bottom of the lake, killed more than 150 sailors. So in my hometown, they were telling stories in the newspaper about famous shipwrecks in Lake Huron. I'd read these every afternoon and one caught my eye. It was of an old man now in his 70s or 80s that was part of a shipwreck many, many years ago. He said the waves literally beat the thing out from under him and he found himself floating on the debris somewhere out in Thunder Bay. He said, I didn't much believe in God, but I decided then if there was one, I should pray. They asked him, what did you pray? And he said, I remember praying God, if you're real, I need you to come into this thing and help me out. I need a miracle, he said. And then what he said next caught my attention. He said, and don't send your son. This is no job for a boy. Come yourself. (laughs) Every theologian's dream. What do you think would happen one day if the sailor found out that this boy is the image of the invisible God, the progenitor of all creation? (laughs) What would he say 
If the sailor learned that this boy, you hope God doesn't send, is the exact representation of his being, created the world, which means when the world was formed, it was the boy who gathered the waters. And it was the boy who blew back the waves in the Red Sea so that the people of God could walk over on dry ground. It is this boy who is our refuge and strength and ever-present help in a time of need, even though the waters surge and the mountains quake. <laughs> Betty changes mind. But what if this boy were to walk out on top of the water in the midst of Thunder Bay and not calm the storm? I bet he'd change his mind back again. If gods don't calm storms, what are gods for? We have in our mind an idea of the way God should act. And when he does not act that way, we are sure he either doesn't exist or he has abandoned us. The Sea of Galilee is a, it's a lake. It's seven miles from coast to coast. It's like a little cup. 600 feet below sea level. It's lined by hills. And those of you that have been on this sea know the description that I'm giving you. When the sun goes down and the air cools, the wind from the west rushes over those hills onto the sea. And at the end of the sea, there's like a little channel in the hills, it looks like, that funnels that wind now picking up in velocity right through that channel and over the Sea of Galilee so that storms can literally come out of nowhere. On this particular night, the disciples have left Jesus on shore three to four miles back. They're in the boat, and according to John, it was just after dark right on time when the storm goes through that channel and the waves start to go. They start straining at the oars, according to Mark chapter 6, trying to stabilize the boat. They're having no luck at all. If they're headed towards Capernaum, that means they're going straight into the teeth of those winds. And so you've got strong fishermen moving the oars, trying to make headway in the can't. And this goes on not for an hour or two, but Matthew tells us it was the fourth watch, that is between three and 6 a.m. that they actually saw Jesus coming. That means that they were straining at the oars a good six to eight hours before Jesus ever showed up. Then they looked out over the boat, and here he comes, walking on the water. Amen. Yeah, amen. Because that's the God that you expect to show up. But let the record show, he never calms the storm. 
not yet. That Jesus should walk on the water is nothing remarkable. If he says, if he is who he says he is, he better walk on the water or he's no God at all. But walking out into a storm, gods are the storm. Gods avoid storms or at least they calm them. The last thing they do is walk out into them. So if you have this idea in your mind of Jesus just sort of hovering on the waters with nothing happening to him, you probably have the wrong image. That would be a ghost. And remember, they thought it was a ghost. No, but it was the full-bodied Jesus walking on top of the water inside the same elements that the disciples were rowing against, and he never did anything to the elements. Peter, taking courage from this, says, Lord, if this is you... Tell me to come to you, and I will. Jesus says, come. <laughs> and he does. He crawls over the boat, and he starts walking on the water toward Jesus until he notices the storm. And suddenly, when the vision of the storm is stronger than his vision of Jesus, he starts to sink and he cries out, Lord, save me. And Jesus reaches out his hand and pulls him back up. And then the two of them get into the boat. And then the storm dies down. This story is very controversial and very confusing, but I think it's a powerful metaphor. I believe it's true, by the way, literally every detail of it. But I think it's also a metaphor for times in our lives when we are suddenly thrown into chaos and there is no immediate answer. I said to her that day in pre-op, don't worry about it, you're going to be okay. A couple hours and you'll be right back with your family. We prayed and I dismissed her, but less than an hour later when the surgeon came into the waiting room trembling so bad she had to sit down and with a quivering voice said, this is not what I expected, everything has changed. She has a terminal disease and I do not expect her to live. I watched an ordinary surgery go into a storm literally in minutes. They were a young, happy, married couple, thought, living two houses down from us on Euclid here. And he was the only one working. They were trying to make single income go. So he'd work all day, extra hours, crazy life, he kept saying. She'd bring the kids down to our front yard. They'd climb our little magnolia tree where the limbs are shorter. And then one day I noticed that he wasn't around as much and I asked what's happening and he said, well, like I said, the hours are crazy. But a few weeks later, I learned that it wasn't the hours at all. He'd found somebody else and 
two weeks after that, he'd moved out of the house. And here, they used to attend our church. And, and here, in the middle of an ordinary, peaceful family, is a sudden storm. I remember walking down to the house the day that they moved her out back to Ohio so she could be with her parents while she got her legs under her. Her father and mother, dad's an ex-Marine, standing in her front yard, and we helped load the U-Haul. And just before they drove away, I said, would you mind if we had a word of prayer? Father, don't know if he's religious or not, said, you can pray if you like. So I said, would you mind if we just stand around the truck and pray for God's blessing on Jenny and the kid's life? Yeah, go for it, he said. And as I started to invoke the name of God in this situation, I felt the man, the Marine, the ex-Marine start to tremble so bad by the time I finished praying, he was doubled over and sobbing. They got into the truck and they drove away and I knew the next six months of their life was gonna be pure chaos. He sits across from me in a cafe stirring his iced tea because he doesn't want to look at me because last week he got an email from some bureaucrat of a large organization that said they'd consolidated the company and his job was done. He could apply for the new position if he wanted, but they think they'd found somebody else. That's legalese for we don't want to get fired by telling you you can't apply. He said, I'm 58. What am I going to do? How long have they known this? I didn't somebody just tell me. And I can see the next three or four, six months of this person's life just being tossed from one side to the other. Do you know what I mean when I say a storm is a perfect metaphor for a situation suddenly out of control? Yes, do you know what I mean? Normally, when this happens, the thing we all cry out for is, why God? Why have you done this? Why are you acting in ways that are not like the God I've worshipped so far? Is it because we have clung so tightly to traditional models of omnipotence that we fail to see the radical idea of God who shows up in the Gospels. He is a God who is weak in power, but strong in love. A God who is willing to be vulnerable to pain in the freedom of love. Christians, of course, believe that God is powerful. Let me change that. Christians believe that God has power, but we believe that God is love. Therefore, his love defines his power. His power does not define his love. So we always speak of God's power within the constraint of love. And we always remind ourselves how 
easy it is to misunderstand what power really is. This is the story of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. When Martha met him out in the path, she said to him, Jesus, if you'd have been here, my brother would not have died, but even now I know God will give you anything you ask for. That's power. You hear it? As soon as Jesus is walking into the village, Mary gets up, comes out, and meets Jesus and says exactly the same words. Jesus, if you'd have been here, my brother would not have died. That's power. Jesus said, where is he? And when she turned to walk to the tomb, Jesus noticed Mary and the other Jews who are overcome with sorrow. And Jesus himself is deeply moved from within verse 33. And before they even get to the tomb, Jesus wept. That's love. Could never understand this. Why do you go to a funeral that you plan on ruining? Why don't you just speak the word and raise that boy right now? Better yet, what'd you wait four days for? No point crying over something you can fix. But while Jesus is crying and the word means to sob, the audience falls into two parts. The very next verse says, some of them looked at Jesus and said, man, look how much he loved him. That's love. But the others turned and said, could not he who have opened the eyes of the blind have kept this man from dying? That's power. Some of them want to start with power and say, my God is all about power, so we better use his love in a storm. Others say, my God is love. Sometimes he just attends the funeral and raises them later. This morning, I think I'm speaking to a lot of people, aren't I? Normally, when we find ourselves in a storm and we're asking God, why on earth are you doing this to me? I hear people say two things all the time. One of the things they always say to me is, why is God angry with me? What have I done to make him so mad? There must be something. I'll say, do you... Uh, do you know what it is? No, no. 
for the life of me, I can't figure it out. That's why I've come to see you. I thought maybe you could tell me what God expected and I transgressed. So in this idea, God is always angry. The other thing I hear is that God is always trying to teach us something. Oh, this is a favorite. There is some deficiency, something I don't know, some missing piece, something that needs purifying. And God is using the storm to do it. Oh, I will say, what don't you know? Well, I don't know. And what I can't understand is how Christians who believe that God loves them and they believe that God only does what is in their best interest also believe that he would subject them to a storm without ever telling them what they did wrong or what they're supposed to fix. Is God really not capable of calling us out? Can he not say, Peter, you will deny me three times before morning? That's pretty specific. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? He nailed it. The one who will betray me, his hands are with mine at my table. That's pretty specific. And yet we believe that God encrypts these messages inside of storms in hopes that we may one day I'm not suggesting that we don't have things to learn and I'm not suggesting that trouble come that doesn't come in order to teach us these things. I'm just suggesting this is always our default. Does not the story of Job teach us that sometimes people suffer not because they lack integrity but precisely because they have it? not because they lack faith. It's because they have faith. And so they have enemies. And enemies do things. And suddenly we find ourselves overwhelmed in circumstances that we cannot control. Note to self. The nature of storms are to be sudden. They come out of nowhere. They are to be on such a scale that they are moving fronts that are way over my head and they are devastating. Do you know how humiliating it is in a storm when someone tells me what I should do? Here's what you should do. You know, and part of me wants to say, no, here's what you should do. 
But can I just plead with you for a moment? When you say these things to someone in a storm, you are implying that because they have not done what they should do, this is what they get. And you're implying that all of the forces that are beating against their life right now are known to you and they are not. And you're implying that by changing their actions, they can shut down a front. I disagree. Some things are way beyond human control. The idea is not to overpower them. It is to sustain yourself in them.